0: This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you for setting aside some time for us today. I'm Rachel Maldonado. I'm your host for today's pod. And joining us today are William Lindahl and Jason Lazarus. Um, two really knowledgeable, excellent gentlemen who are going to talk to us today about uh, Medicare and Medicaid claimants and and settling claims with claimants who are dual beneficiaries. So quickly, I just want to give some bios on these really esteemed guests. Um, William Lindahl is the National Executive Director for the CPT Institute. He spent the last 24 years providing education and training to the legal community. He provides no-cost consultations to the legal and judicial community. He helps counsel to identify barriers of settlement and how to distribute settlement funds without endangering government benefit eligibility for the injured and or their dependents. So we're looking forward to hearing from him today. And then we also have um, Jason Lazarus. I'm just and he, Mr. Lazarus, is the founder and chief executive officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy offers healthcare lien resolution, Medicare secondary Payer compliance services, and complex settlement consulting. He is also the managing partner and founder of the special needs law firm, a Florida law firm that provides legal services related to public benefit preservation, liens, and Medicare secondary Payer compliance. Jason is an Amazon bestselling author, and his book, Art of Settlement, is a detailed guide for trial lawyers related to regulatory compliance when resolving catastrophic claims. His written work has been cited as authoritative on Medicare compliance by the Supreme Court of Florida and the United States Southern District of Florida. Mr. Lazarus received his BA from the University of Central Florida and his JD with high honors from Florida State University. He received his LLM in elder law with distinction from Setson University College of Law. Mr. Lazarus is a Medicare set-aside consultant certified by the International Commission on Healthcare Certification. So again, we have some pretty esteemed um, guests today. And so I just want to launch right into our, our topic today, gentlemen. Um, again, we're talking about Medicare, Medicaid recipients, and settling with dual beneficiaries. And so the biggest question um, I know myself and a lot of other listeners are, are asking: what are the things that you most wish? Parties settling would know, or what are some of the biggest pitfalls that you see in settlements with these beneficiaries?
2: Rachel, yeah, you know, I think starting off, one of the critical things for the parties to understand is that if you're dealing with someone that's dual eligible, that means you've got double the responsibilities, um, and I'm talking more from the claimant side to make sure that ultimately the subrogation issues are addressed. So you, potentially you could have Medicare and Medicaid payments, uh, depending on how that case was postured. And then the more complicated issues of how do you plan for that beneficiary to make sure that ultimately when they settle their case, they don't lose eligibility for the needs-based government benefits, uh, as well as deal with the Medicare secondary payer act. So that, yeah. From, from all the parties standpoint, understanding from a starting point how the coordination of benefits work, because sometimes that's um, a, a bit foreign in that in this situation, Medicare is always primary to Medicaid. Medicaid is secondary in this instance. So when you look at the different programs that are available to someone that's dual eligible and there's, there's uh, a variety of different programs, They are supplementing what Medicare provides. So if a dual eligible is getting all the benefits uh, that are available under the Medicaid program, pretty much they have zero out of pocket. So Medicaid is going to cover all the copays, deductibles, uh, prescription drug expenses. So, you know, for the parties, understanding how um, how those coordination benefits work and what the benefits are is really important because that's going to dictate how that case resolves to some extent. And from the claimant's perspective, I think it's really important to remember this acronym READ, which is making sure that as a uh, as a lawyer representing a, a beneficiary a claimant, uh, you, you review your client's benefits and intake and throughout the case updating it to make sure you know what they're uh, receiving, making sure you enlist experts to educate, the lawyer and the end client, the, the claimant, making sure you've got copies of the award letters. Uh, frequently, uh, a claimant will confuse the different benefits. Medicare, Medicaid sometimes are blurred. Um, Social Security benefits, sometimes people think they're getting SSD when they're getting SSI. Um, and then making sure that files and um, uh, settlement agreements are properly documented as to who's doing what and how these issues are gonna be addressed. Um, so that, from my perspective, starting us off, I think those are those are some of the more broader issues. I'm sure w- Will's so, got tremendous experience too in these areas.
0: Jason, that was fantastic. Um, yeah, my, my problems I run into because we're nationwide is cross-state issues. I'm sure you see that too. I mean, a lot of people don't realize there's a dramatic difference when you're coordinating benefits, say, from California and the rest of the country. Um, that's the biggest thing I run into is that people don't recognize that all the, the rules are not the same depending on what state you're in. They don't even realize that states are classified into three different areas, the SSI criteria states of 1634s. Um, we run into all kinds of problems crossing state lines. I'm sure you feel the same.
2: Yeah, no, that that's so, that's a great issue.
1: <laughs> so let me ask you guys this. Would something like requesting the claimant's um, benefits card that maybe the onset of a claim be helpful to you? Or do you find that that um, might change over the course of the claim? And so intermittently throughout the claim, if it goes over a year or more, maybe ask for those benefit cards again. Would that be helpful for you guys?
0: Yeah, we actually, when we do training for law firms on how to do case intake and look for barriers to settlements, we make sure all law firms when they agree to accept the claimant, that they go to ssa.gov forward slash my account and set up their account with social security. So there's not any fogginess or confusion as to what benefits are available to the claimant. And then when you're close to settlement, same thing, you do rediscovery because a lot of barriers to settlement are from collateral issues within the family unit, so to speak, right? And things like that. So knowing how much benefits have or have not changed between the beginning of the claim versus when you settle it, is very very critical
2: yeah not much to add
0: so you
1: guys so you guys talked about california specifically and how that differs from the from the rest of the country um tell me more about that um i know a lot of of us out there listening do have claims in california and, and from just a general medicare perspective or even preparing an msa or other medicare issues um it is a different state by and large than a lot of the other states so how is that impactful to you guys?
0: Well, Jason, you want me to cover the two new laws that just happened here in California?
2: Yeah, I was gonna say I defer to will since i'm I'm a Florida practitioner. I think he's he's definitely more well suited to talk about California.
0: So California did something very unusual in the United States. It did two very significant things. First, as of um, November, first of November uh, last year, they passed the law DHCS now in the state does not count MSA funds as countable at all. So when you settle any case in California, there's no consideration to put an MSA inside of an s because it's uncountable. But of course, you got to caution these firms that are discharging money to these clients that if they leave the state, that's not the case. That money is going to have to be irrevocably assigned to an s So that's the first thing is that MSAs are not accountable countable asset as far as government benefits are concerned in the state of California. Now, keep in mind, that's only for the state MediCal or Medicaid program. Uh, SSI is federal, so you'd still need a trust. But the second big, huge change that California made is effective July 1st this year. Literally anybody, even if they're disabled, can have $130,000 in assets and still keep their Medi-Cal. And in 2024, should it stay fully funded, the program, There'll be no asset test whatsoever, even if you're disabled. So essentially, in California, you could get a $5 million award and still keep your Medi-Cal because the only barometer used to determine your eligibility for Medi-Cal or Medicaid in California, which which is called Medi-Cal, sorry, um, is going to be your income only. So imagine how dramatic that is. Essentially, if a client surrenders SSI in California and just applies for Uh, Medi-Cal, Medicaid, then they could have any amount of money in the bank and still keep that benefit. So that's a dramatic difference from the rest of the country. Another huge law variance or significant uh, element in California is that California is the only state in the union that didn't adopt the DRA Deficit Reduction Act of 2005. And as a result, it's the only state in America that you can take a guaranteed annuity and skip state lien payback legally, and the state does not mandate a remainder interest in a guaranteed annuity
1: contract. Okay, great. I mean, that's that's some really interesting stuff. Now, I know we, and, and Will and Jason, you guys kind of touched on this. You, you were talking about how in California... Um, If you have a settlement a special needs trust the the MSA funds don't necessarily count towards their benefits and it might not be needed just in the state of California not necessarily talking about SSI. Can you guys talk about more about the special needs trust and and how that is so important in these claims?
2: One thing I think going back to something that Will said it's just important to understand as a starting point that SSI and Medicaid are both asset and income sensitive generally speaking across the country, but there's variation state to state with Medicaid, but SSI is, is a federal uh, program. So with SSI, the asset cap and income caps are applied regardless of what the state Medicaid program dictates. So if someone is in California and they they don't do any planning whatsoever at the time of settlement, Related to what might happen if they move, it can create some some issues because ultimately they might say, Well, I'm gonna eschew SSI, but then they they go to another state where SSI automatically gives you Medicaid coverage and they might want the SSI benefit and then they need to do separate planning. So just all these issues become a lot more complex because of the state-to-state variation with medicaid so you've really got to make sure that ultimately those issues are thought through and, and nobody has a crystal ball but at the very least there's some things that you can do with trusts where you do have the ability to have trust within trusts and sometimes that planning mechanism is good for future state where you've got somebody that may be moving or may need to plan say say you've got someone that's younger and may have you know 50 60 years of life expectancy left there's a pretty good likelihood they may move jurisdictions so doing some planning in ways to hopefully mitigate those issues especially if you've got medicare set-asides because there are states that that will count those unlike california as an available resource so that becomes problematic if it wasn't put into an irrevocable uh, trust wrapper at the outset. So lot lots of little distinct issues that you've got to be careful about, and especially if structured settlements are a part of the planning, because that creates an income stream, typically speaking, um, for life, and that can pose problems uh, for income cap programs. So I'll let Will add to that, because I'm sure he's got some thoughts as it relates to that.
0: Jason, that was fantastic. You know, the only thing I like to bring up, Jason, is you, I'm sure you run into this all the time, is that it's incredibly dangerous when people try to structure under an income cap. Because one of the problems is a lot of people, um, when you're doing this type of planning, they don't keep in mind that you have to account for assets, income, and resources collectively. And another thing that that we commonly run into is as a national nonprofit trustee, we allow people to move all around the United States because we have separate trust instruments in every state. But a lot of people don't understand that they still have to counsel with somebody every time you move, because we constantly have to warn clients that they're not going to get that same level of support and or coverage in another state. Another dramatic example, if you're not already aware, Jason knows this, one of the most difficult states in the United States is Arizona. Um, Arizona doesn't even allow reimbursements from an s and to a third party. So... Um, To say we have to keep quite a plethora of um, significant database information, Jason and I, just to keep our jobs uh, uh, accurate and on point is an understatement.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it sounds like experts like yourselves are really instrumental in settling with these claimants because obviously um, as attorneys and and vendors and insurers, we all wanna make sure we're settling appropriately and so it sounds like really getting a third party involved um, such as yourselves is is so important because there is so many intricacies with different state jurisdictions and different um ways to set up the funding so if you guys had you know a a case what is like your perfect case so to speak so and the and what i mean by that is what would be your most um ideal set of facts when you're settling a case with these Medicare or Medicare or Medicaid claimants what would be the ideal setup on um, the ideal kind of settlement package in your eyes
2: it's kind of a tough question cuz really it does as we've talked about it it varies by jurisdiction so you know in my home state of, of Florida because there is no exemption from MSA being accountable we would we would have that uh, set up within an SNT wrapper to make sure that ultimately the claimant doesn't lose their Medicare and Medicaid eligibility simultaneously so ultimately you know it it is going to vary greatly by the uh, where you are jurisdictionally in terms of what the perfect picture looks like but you know I Really what it boils down to is doing an analysis of what that claimant's needs are going to be, what the future might look like, and then ultimately talking through the different solutions that may fit that client's need. Because even if they are here in Florida, but they tell me, hey, you know, I'm going to move somewhere else, then that's where, okay, well, we really need to make sure. And that's where sometimes a pool trust um, uh, like wills where they can be put into a pool trust that does have uh, different joiners and different master trusts for different jurisdictions makes a whole heck of a lot of sense because it gives that not for profit that's acting as trustee flexibility to move things around. So I, it's just so highly fact dependent. I don't think there's any perfect scenario.
0: I couldn't agree more, Jason. I think the only thing that I would add to what Jason's saying is that you absolutely need to engage a benefit expert. I mean, you've got to, I mean, there's just too many minefields and there's a lot of authority issues and differentiation between different courts around the country and how they perceive and look at this information also. So I think a lot of problems that Jason and I run into too is educating uh, counsel on appropriately understanding when you file a compromise and why, how you actually file stuff on the right court and give the right notices. I mean, the other thing is there's barriers to settlement that affect these benefits that people don't even think about, like spousal deeming and parental deeming to their children. So um there's no such thing as the perfect scenario, but you better do your homework and get all the facts, or you're going to give very bad advice very easily.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. It it really ultimately boils down to, you know, a huge malpractice exposure for you know, lawyers that are handling these claims on behalf of the beneficiaries. And then, you know, obviously there's MSP related concerns on the on the carrier side too. So making sure that the parties agree, hey, these issues are present and you know we're we're going to address these issues somehow some way. Uh, and ultimately it starts with the education of the lawyers understanding what these issues are. and hiring the appropriate experts and then making sure the claimant actually understands these issues. I'm in the process of of final editing for a a book that I've written for injury victims that goes through, explains all these issues because, you know, quite frequently uh, they just simply don't get an explanation from their lawyers who represent them and they may not bring in an expert, which means that ultimately you know, potentially that's that's a, a malpractice exposure because, you know, issues related to the law should be explained by the lawyer representing the injury victim. And I, I talk about this frequently uh, when I lecture on this. It, it really is part of the ethical responsibilities. I think uh, ultimately that's the way I interpret the, the rules of professional conduct. And uh, I think that failing to do that probably would violate the standard of care for for not properly educating the client, either you have to do it as the lawyer or you have to hire benefit experts and lawyers who can who can make sure that the issues are properly addressed.
0: You know, and Jason, not only do I agree, uh, that's exactly why the IRS gave us our tax exemption, we're a tax exempt 501c3. And we survive on grants and donations, and we provide education and training resources to the legal and judicial community on purpose in this very area because it is full of minefields. And it tends to be things that are related to procedure operating manual rules or MSP compliance, things that they're not going to know from law school. So this is something where you have to reach out to an external party. It's too dangerous to not.
1: Well, gentlemen, I think you've given us a lot to think about today. I mean, these are some excellent uh, points, some some really interesting information. I think a lot of people will probably be reaching out to you in the future after this conversation. But I want to thank you again for having um, or spending some time uh, to talk with us today. Um, and thank you for the audience for setting aside some time to listen to our MSPN podcast. And I just want to ask if you guys have any Last comments before we wrap this up, um, go ahead and give them.
2: I mean, I think we've really hit the nail on the head pretty much here that, hey, there's state-to-state variants and, hey, you need experts ultimately advising you or seeking out resources like Will's not-for-profit that can help ultimately make sure that the client, the injury victim, the, the worker's comp claimant gets the education they need, and and the lawyers get the protection they need for their practices to make sure that these important issues are addressed, as well as just all the parties coordinating together, because it really is not just a claimant issue; it's really a a, a settlement issue, because these issues can bog down settlements if they're not handled appropriately, as well, and nobody wants that as parties to a to a settlement.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing is to make sure you know what resources are out there on a national level. I mean, there's an organization that's made up of the Academy of Special Needs Planners. There's a Special Needs Alliance. These are specialized attorneys, just like Jason, that are experts in this realm. Um, So, you know, you you just have to know that there are national resources out there and to make good use of them.
1: Well, thank you again, gentlemen, and thank you uh, for taking that time again to talk to us. Uh, We thank you for that, and uh, we hope everybody joins us for our next podcast. Thanks, and have a great day, everyone.
2: Thanks, Rachel.